In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of the heaven of heaven, churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all of this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them, until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favour of the holy people of the Most High, 
and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth, the fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try and change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times and a half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power and greatness of all the kingdoms, kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision, after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal, I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns, standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue it from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came towards the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in a great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power... The large horn was broken off, and in its place four prominent horns grew up and towards the four winds of heaven. Of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of heavens, and it threw some of the starry host down to earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord, it took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Okay, so this is Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 20. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him 
to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And, and thanks, Pete, as well, for giving me this opportunity to preach um, and giving me my choice of passage to preach on. I felt a bit greedy asking to preach on Daniel 7 because it's not just the climax of the book, but it's also one of the most exciting bits of the Bible. Um, I didn't actually think Peter would give it to me. Anyway, uh, so it's a key passage for understanding God's kingdom, who Jesus is, and who we are as people in Christ. And there's chapter 8 as well, so there's a lot to cover. Um, so make yourself comfortable. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to understand this exciting but enigmatic part of your word. In all things, may your son, Jesus, be glorified. In his name, amen. So we're, we're several weeks into a sermon series on the book of Daniel, and we're at the turning point. The first half of Daniel is a bit like the first season of a TV show. Life in Babylon, the story of Daniel and his friends captives in a foreign land. Each chapter is like an episode that's a complete story, and a standalone episode. But like any good TV show, Daniel 1 to 6 is more than just a series of episodes. It's also uh, a season featuring narrative arcs that gradually that develop gradually. Take, for example, Daniel's arc. He goes from being a teenage captive from a defeated nation to the king's most, most trusted advisor and the administrator over the whole kingdom. Then there's the effect that Daniel had on Babylon. Through the faithfulness of God's people, in exile, a society that did not know or acknowledge God came to experience his blessing. And kings who did not know and acknowledge God came to honour and praise him. So Daniel 1-6 to is a masterclass in how to be people that are in the world but not of it, and how God works through them to change the world. And throughout this first season of Daniel, there have been hints that there's more going on than meets the eye. Occasionally we've got a dream or a vision that suggested there's more to the story than simply the court politics that Daniel and his friends have been caught up in. So in Daniel 7, the curtain gets ripped away, the visions take over, and we're allowed to see the spiritual reality that is above and beyond the world of earthly kings and kingdoms. Daniel 7 is the classic season finale with a big reveal that upends everything and leaves us waiting for the second season. Where Daniel 7 is the mind-bending season finale, Daniel 8 is the slightly less surreal opening episode of the confusing second season. The straightforward narrative episodes of Daniel 1 to 6 are gone, replaced in Daniel 7 to 12 with visions of beasts and angels, dreams with symbolic references and puzzling numbers. It's an abrupt and disorientating change, as if David Lynch or the writers of Lost were suddenly put in charge of the Big Bang Theory. And we poor viewers are left wondering what on earth is going on. Well, the genre of Daniel 7 to 12 is apocalypse. 
that word apocalypse conjures up images of cataclysmic destruction, the end of the world, and it should. Apocalyptic writing addresses times when it feels like it's the end of the world. Because the second half of Daniel switches focus from life in Babylon to life after Babylon. In a series of visions, God gives Daniel a look into the future, revealing an overview of history spanning over 400 years, starting with the exile, but extending to long after the exiles have returned to Jerusalem. But life after Babylon is going to be disappointing. The temple will be rebuilt, will be rebuilt but God's presence doesn't seem to fill it as it had filled the first temple. And the Jews would remain subject to one foreign empire after another. Babylon has been left behind, but it seems like the exile continues. And there's worse to come. In the second century BC, the Jews would face a, great, a time of great persecution and division. A time when it looks like those who are opposed to God and his people will triumph. So this is the context that Daniel 7 to 12 addresses. Although I'm actually not going to speak much about that at all. I'm leaving that for Pete to talk about in the next two sermons. So, apocalypse is resistance literature. It promises hopes to God's people when they're being oppressed by revealing the spiritual reality that is behind their suffering. We cannot see the spiritual realm directly, so apocalyptic writing uses visual metaphor and symbolic imagery to communicate its message. It's kind of prophecy through pictures. And apocalypse also often has a cyclical structure. So the vision in Daniel 7 and the vision in Daniel 8 depict the same historical events. And we get two more versions of these events, uh, once in the brief vision in Daniel 9, and then again in the very long vision of Daniel 10 to 12. And there's another point which I didn't actually put up on the slide, but uh, uh, Apocalypse also communicates its message on an emotional level. So it's as much about how it makes us feel as what the images mean, what they, what, yeah, what they reference. And it's very easy to get lost in, in the details. And so today we're not actually going to get into the details. We're going to look at uh, more broad brush, looking at the three main visual metaphors, uh, the three images of Daniel 7 and 8. So these, these images are the beasts, kings, and image bearers. Th these images actually are not just in Daniel uh, seven and eight, but they're throughout the whole book and they unite the book. Uh, so even though the second season of Daniel is a different genre, it's still very much about the same thing as the first season. So let's start with the beasts. Daniel's first vision came in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. This is the same Belshazzar who died at the end of chapter five. So we're jumping back about um, 11 years in time. Then there's the second vision in Daniel 8, which is two years later. This, as I said, parallels Daniel 7. I'm going to focus on chapter 7 and only just touch on chapter 8 in bits, 
But the two are designed to be read together. Uh, okay, so let's begin. Daniel's first vision starts with the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. We should be worried. This is an ominous beginning. For the Jews, the great sea was a place of danger and chaos, a place filled with monstrous creatures who opposed God. It's, it's kind of how we think of outer space in, in, in movies. It's a mysterious, hostile place, a place home to aliens, not friendly Martians, but the utterly foreign and terrifyingly aggressive aliens of Independence Day or the Alien franchise. And it's not long before these aliens arrive. Out of the sea emerge four nightmarish beasts. These are not recognisable animals. The first is like a lion, but with eagle's wings. The second is like a bear, but it's raised up on its side. The third is like a leopard, but has four heads and wings. And the fourth, the multi-headed beast, it's completely like anything on earth. These beasts do not belong in God's good creation. Their hybrid forms transgress the order of the world and their violent natures threaten it. And yet, each is allowed to dominate the world. The first is made to resemble a human. The second is told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. The third is given authority to rule and the fourth doesn't wait for permission, permission it just asserts its power. So we learn in verse 17 that these four great beasts are four kings. So this vision of four beasts representing four kings or four kingdoms parallels Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2 of the statue made of gold, silver, bronze and iron. This statue also represented four kingdoms and the gold head was identified as referencing Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, again, in, in Daniel 8, the parallel vision, uh, we have only two beasts, a ram and a goat. Uh, the ram is identified as Media and Persia, which would soon conquer Babylon. And the goat as Greece, which would conquer Persia in turn about 200 years later. Now, none of the other beasts or metals are identified, and while some we can quite clearly guess who they reference, I think that should caution us not to focus on the identities of these kingdoms because I think the point is actually in the pattern and the symbolism of the visions. So the pattern tells us that God's people will be subject to a series of foreign kingdoms. The symbolism of the statue is that these kingdoms will appear impressive and eternal but that this is an illusion. Like the statue, the kingdoms will eventually be brought to nothing. The symbolism of the beasts emphasises brutal strength and the destructive nature of empires. These beasts should remind us of beasts we've already met in Daniel, the lions in their den who overpowered and crushed their victims' bones, and Nebuchadnezzar's madness when he received the mind of an animal. Nebuchadnezzar's pride had turned him into a beast, so he was made to act like that, as Pete told us in, in his sermon. So it is the pride of rulers and nations 
particularly a pride that opposes, uh, that causes them to oppose God, that ultimately fuels the violence of world history. Few things exemplify beast-like rule than the hell on earth that the Khmer Rouge inflicted on Cambodia. Pol Pot turned the country into a giant forced labour camp in a delusional attempt to create a radically agrarian society. In, four and a half, in the four and a half years of his rule, one in four Cambodians died, killed by war, starvation, overwork, torture, and execution. The faces of some of these victims comprise a haunting gallery in the Tulsling Genocide Museum on the site of a former torture prison. And yet, a Cambodian friend of mine once said this to me. Listing the series of governments that have ruled Cambodia since independence, the Sihanouk regime, the Lon No regime, the Pol Pot regime, the v Vietnamese regime, the Hun Sen regime. They're all the same. None of them care about the little people. In the end, the Khmer Rouge was just another regime. A horrifically savage one, to be sure, but just one in a line of brutal regimes. Inhuman rule like that of the Khmer Rouge is all too easy to find in history. Pol Pot's rule of terror was directly inspired by Maoist China's cultural revolution and revolutionary France's reign of terror. The two million killed by the Khmer Rouge is dwarfed by the 15 million who died in World War I and the 70 million who died in World War II. I'm sure you can think of many examples just from recent years. The Lord's Resistance Army in Uganda, the Rwandan genocide, Abu Ghraib, Islamic State, Syria, Yemen, East Timor, Manus Island, Nauru. And in our lives, we see beasts rule in our workplaces as exploitively, exploitive bosses and manipulative co-workers. In families, it manifests as domestic violence and neglect. And even in churches, with the terrible sexual abuse of children. Power is dangerous for humans. Give someone just a little bit, and they'll start building their own empire. And if they're not careful, power will distort their humanity into something beastly. The images in Daniel 7 are strange monsters but all too familiar beasts. As Lord Acton famously said, great men are almost always bad men. So Alexander the Great was hot-tempered, hot impulsive, paranoid, and a drunkard who once crucified 2,000 citizens of a city merely because that city had refused to acknowledge him as king. Alexander is probably rep uh, represented by the prominent horn of the goat, the goat that uh, furiously, furiously trampled the ram underfoot. So that ram is Persia, which rose to preeminence under Cyrus the Great. This Cyrus styled, him, styled himself as the great king, king of kings, king of Persia, king of Ashan, king of Media, king of Babylon, king of Sumer and Akkud, king of the four corners of the world. Which brings us to the second of the images in Daniel, the king. 
have already met a few kings. So Nebuchadnezzar, who seemed to swing from rage when he didn't get his way and extravagant praise when pleased. Belshazzar, about whom God delivered the verdict, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And Darius, who was easily manipulated into making a very foolish decision. And these are the king of kings. They don't exactly inspire much confidence. In fact, they're distinctly reminiscent of today's leaders. I think it's fair to say that our society is pretty disillusioned with leaders. Politicians such as Malcolm Turnbull here in Australia, Theresa May in the UK, and yes, Donald Trump in the US, well, they're really quite insipid. None have offered much of a coherent vision of what they want to do, and all have proved inept at governing. So the picture of human rulers that Daniel presents is brutality and ineffectiveness. So thank goodness that these are not the only kings in Daniel. Throughout Daniel 1 to 6, Yahweh has been proclaimed king again and again. None of the episodes is complete without at least one song of praise extolling the wisdom, the might, and the everlasting rule of the Lord. Now, at last, we meet him. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of flour was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Yahweh, inflamed, uh, enthroned in glory and intended by a host of multitudes. This is the God of Daniel, and this is our God. The king in heaven has convened his court to judge the kings of earth. For we see that a boastful horn has grown up out of the fourth beast. This especially ferocious beast and its boastful horn represent the regime and the ruler that would violently persecute the Jews in the second century BC. God will not let this persecution continue or go unpunished. So the fourth beast is killed and thrown into the fire, while the other beasts are merely declawed, so to speak. This is great news. Beasts will not rule the world forever. But it raises the question, who will rule in their place? God rules in heaven, but who will rule on earth on his behalf? So to answer that, let's turn to our final visual metaphor, the image or image bearer. In Daniel 2 and 3, we encounter the statue of four metals of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the idol or image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar erects outside Babylon. In the ancient world, a king would erect statues or images of himself throughout his kingdom to show that he ruled the land. Everywhere his image was, was subject to his authority. When God created the world, he did the same thing. He put images of himself on earth to show that it is his. We are those images. We read in Genesis, Then God said, 
Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created he, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. As bearers of God's image, humanity was made to rule the world on God's behalf. In Daniel, we've seen kings in particular fulfill this role. In words that echo Genesis, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. But all humans are made in God's image, and in Daniel it's not just kings who rule. Daniel ruled as well. We noted Daniel's character arc from captive to Darius setting him over the whole kingdom. So have you noticed that the pattern in Daniel 1 to 6? Each episode broadly follows this, a similar sequence. So first, the Babylonian officials enter the king's presence and they are judged incompetent or deceitful. Next, Daniel enters the king's presence and they are found faithful and wise. Then the authority that was exercised by the Babylonian officials is taken from them and given to Daniel or his friends who are honoured, sometimes even worshipped. So what do we see next in the vision? There before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So it's the same pat pattern, except on a cosmic scale. First, the beast beasts entered God's presence, and they were judged. Next, the one like a son of man enters God's presence. Then he's given authority that was taken from the beasts and he's worshipped. Thus, this one like the son of man functions in God's kingdom as Daniel did in Babylon. He is set by the king over the whole kingdom. So who is this one like a son of man? Well, the phrase son of man simply means a human being. So one like a son of man is a being who looks like a human, in contrast to the beasts who looked like a lion, like a bear, etc. The empires of the world appear as beasts because they were not faithful image bearers. In them, the image of God has been distorted by their selfish and brutish use of power. Thus, the one like a human is humanity as we were meant to be, faithful image bearers. The one, like a son of man, is the true image of God, whose rule reflects God's character, a rule that will last forever. 
Verses 18 and 27 associate this eternal rule with the holy people of the Most High. So God's people will receive the power that's stripped from the empires that once oppressed them. But there's a problem. Well, two actually. First, we've seen that humans can't handle power. So putting any humans, even the people of God, in control of the universe for all time is a recipe for disaster. Secondly, the vision finishes astonishingly with all the creation worshipping, not the Ancient of Days on the throne, but the Son of Man. There is only one God, so the Son of Man, as well as being God's people, somehow must also be God. Both these problems, of course, are resolved in the person of Jesus, the divine human, who both is God and represents God's people. Indeed, the Son of Man was typically how Jesus referred to himself. It was his favourite title. And in claiming this title, this is what Jesus was crucified for. At his trial, when asked if he was the Son of God, Jesus replied with words taken straight from Daniel 7, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. Jesus is not just the faithful image bearer that we could not be, but he's the exact likeness of the Father, the image of the invisible God, in whom God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell, as it said in Colossians. And in Christ, we can know God and we are being restored to be image bearers who truly reflect God's character. So, I'll finish now by briefly looking at how we can be image bearers of the King in a world of beasts. Because Jesus is the Son of Man, we can live lives of faith, hope and glory. While Jesus ushered in God's kingdom 2,000 years ago, the beasts will remain with us until he returns. But he has left us his spirit to enable us to be faith-filled and faithful image bearers. So this means seeking first his kingdom each day and daily choosing obedience to Christ, even when that means going against those who have power over us. It means being prepared to endure persecution for our obedience and praying for and supporting our brothers and sisters around the world who are now being persecuted. And it means proclaiming that Jesus is king in all we say and do. Daniel 7 promises that the Son of Man will return to judge the world and that that judgment will be in favour of his holy people. So we have the sure hope of an end to beasts. God will hold accountable every image bearer for how well they have reflected his image. And those of us who trust in the Son of Man have hope too for forgiveness for how we have failed to reflect his image. This is a hope we should share, 
The end of beasts comes not only through their condemnation, but through their restoration. Nebuchadnezzar was restored to sanity and his kingship when he repented. Quite a few Khmer Rouge commanders, including the commander of the Tall Sling Torture Prison, have repented of their brutality and put their trust in Christ. There is no beast so depraved Jesus' death and resurrection cannot redeem. Finally, the Son of Man is reigning now, seated at the right hand of God, and we, who have been raised with him, share in his glory and participate in his reign. Reigning with Christ firstly means ruling yourself, seeking the growth of the fruits of the Spirit in your life, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And it means working diligently for both God's kingdom and the secular kingdom we are in, so that people may see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. And in everything, Christ may have the supremacy. And upon Jesus' return, the sovereignty, the power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. Amen.